Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, 23-time Olympic gold medalist Michael Phelps talks about the challenges of managing mental health during the pandemic. The biggest thing is just making sure we're taking care of our mental well-being as we are our physical well-being. And also, for the people that are truly, really struggling out there, understand you're not alone and understand that it's okay to not be okay. And a former Division I basketball player and current attorney describes how sports helped him to succeed off the court and in the courtroom. I feel really grateful that when I walked away from basketball, I was able to get a lot out of it, right? That I was able to leverage basketball and use basketball as a vehicle to have some great opportunities and have a great career. Plus, acclaimed sports columnist and author, Mike Lupica. I've always thought of myself as a writer first. Mm -hmm. The other stuff has been great. But when I shut the door in my writing room and these characters start to come alive, it's the happiest time of my professional day. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic athlete ever. He'll be talking about his struggles with his mental health. He's been very candid about those issues in the last few years. But first... One of the pleasures of hosting this show is getting to talk to people who've done extraordinary things. People like Michael Phelps and people like our next guest, Milt McCall, who won two Super Bowls, Super Bowl 16 and 19, playing for the San Francisco 49ers in the 1980s. He also got a medical degree while he was playing in the NFL at Stanford, where he was also an undergraduate class of 1981, med school class of 1989, I believe, but did not practice medicine until very recently. He decided in his 50s that he would get out of the biotech industry and the venture capital business uh, in which he had used his medical degree but had never done his residency and decided that he would instead practice medicine working as a family physician mostly with uh, disadvantaged patients and went to do his residency in his 50s. He is now a family practitioner in California, and Dr. McCall joins us now. Did I get that right? I think I got it right. Uh, all the numbers and everything, pretty much, right? I was impressed. Yeah, it's hard to <laughs> hard to keep track of a... My, my, my career has gone so many different directions, it's hard to keep track of it myself sometimes. Peripatetic would be one way, I guess, to put it. You know, you're a Stanford guy, so I'm trying to use as many big words as possible. Um, why did you decide in your mid-50s that you wanted to change direction? So I've been very fortunate. I mean, first of all, just to, to play in the NFL. And of course, I got the very lucky times, I should say, or good times during the 49ers kind of era during the during the 80s when we won, well, they won, ended up winning five Super Bowls in that stretch between uh, Bill Walsh and George Seifert. 
Um, and I was fortunate to come in as a free agent the very first year, and we won our, uh, my rookie year. We won our first Super Bowl, and then won another one a couple years later. Um, I was fortunate also that Stanford allowed me to go to medical school while I was playing football during that entire time. So I ended up with my medical degree and my license. Um, and then I decided to just take a, some time off to help get involved with a medical device company. I was going to take one year off, and that one year literally turned into 20-plus years in the end. Uh, I went into the medical device business and uh, into venture capital eventually. But as I was kind of approaching my 50s, I just realized I, I really missed being a doctor and being medicine. So I went back and started volunteering in San Francisco um, at, a, at a free clinic there. And I just realized how how enjoyable and how much satisfaction I had treating people that basically, you know, had much more disadvantage than, than we were. And uh, so in the end, I was doing that like one day a month just for really for my edification as much as theirs and realized I just didn't know as much medicine as I needed to know. So I went back and talked to Stanford about doing a residency. And so I ended up doing that. We're speaking with Milt McCall, who played linebacker in the NFL for nine seasons, won two Super Bowls with the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, got his medical degree more than 30 years ago. Was there anybody else doing a residency at that time who was close to your age group? <laughs> Not quite. I, they were all my kids' age. So we would be up. I mean, it was being an intern again in medicine in your mid-50s is a, it was, was, a, was a challenge. Uh, we'd be up all night long. We'd have 24-hour shifts. And I'd be sitting up at 3 in the morning in a little cubicle with a usually two other residents, and uh, they were all my kids' age, and I was asking them questions a lot about what's going on because they were way smarter than I was. What's tougher, training camp for Bill Walsh or residency? You know, those are just completely different things. I mean, <laughs> our training camp was out in the middle of the desert in California in a place near Sacramento, which was 110 degrees during the day. We we lived the old ways of training, uh, and we were completely secluded. So, But it was a great feeling. I mean, you had a lot of fun going to training camp. It was hard work, but it was also a lot of fun in the evenings and things. So, uh, and, and, and the same thing with residency, you really develop relationships with people. And I had the most incredible residents that, uh, um, that I worked with and they taught me so much in my, my attendings. I was just so fortunate. It was three of the best years of my life. I have to say way more interesting to do it in your fifties than when in your, in your twenties. You know, when you made the decision to go into medical device, I said biotech earlier, not biotech, uh, medical devices for a long time. What, what were you doing uh, in the medical device industry for all those years? Yeah, so actually, one of my companies was a biotech company, so it's it's oh, okay. it's, it's it's kind of the, yeah, it's it's a crossover. They kind of blend itself in. But I was I started off as a medical director. I did a lot of the clinical studies and clinical trials and FDA approvals. I actually had to go in front of the FDA and present a product that got approved by the FDA many years ago. Uh, and then as I kind of my career went along, I ended up being uh, senior executives. I was the president of a division for Boston Scientific and did that for about six or seven years and then just decided to go on the investment side and look at a lot of st I've been in a lot of small startup companies before. And so it gave me a chance to sort of decide where, where should we invest money? Where do we think we can make money and what what needs really exist out there in the medical world? So that's what I did. What did your what did your dad think about your idea? And he's still he's still with us. He's 90 years old. What what, what did he think when you told him you were going to go do your residency finally after all these years? Yeah. So, you know, my dad is uh, is 90 years old, as you mentioned. He's still in great health, fortunately, living down in, in Southern California right now. 
And, you know, I think he was as, as supportive as I would have expected. I mean, he, I think he enjoyed being a doctor for his, he was a doctor for, for 40 years as a, as an orthopedic surgeon. And, uh, you know, he always supported me when I told him to go into, I was going to go into business. He, he was a very big supporter of mine saying, I think medicine's changing. It's not going to be like it was when I was practicing. Um, he had a private practice for many years. He was on call every day, every night. And then, you know, for me, I don't, I didn't really want to deal with the business side of medicine. I just want to treat patients. And so things have changed a lot. And I work at the county hospital. You know, Jeff Smith is the county executive where I work. It's been incredible what they've done around the coronavirus. Santa Clara County. Yeah, Santa Clara County. And we were the very first case and the first death in the United States, yet we have had very few corona deaths and very few corona cases, surprisingly, considering we were so early on. And I think it was the, you know, Jeff Smith and the rest of the whole county was very quick in reacting. And, and I just saw a study came out of Columbia yesterday that said they thought that probably at least tens of thousands of deaths would have occurred in the United States if we had sheltered in place even one week earlier. And I think we were at the very beginning. We were the very first counties all in San Francisco, San Jose, that put shelter in place immediately. And it's had a huge impact because we've had very few deaths in our area. And I, I compliment our our group for doing that. We're speaking with Dr. Milt McCall, the two-time Super Bowl champion, practicing family practitioner, if that makes sense, in Santa Clara County. And what's it like going to work now in this environment um, when, uh, you know, there's still so much that's unknown about uh, about the disease, the way it's transmitted and, and the way it, um, the way people react to it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, after I finished my residency, I went to work at the county hospital, which is Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. It's uh, right in San Jose. Um, we treat pretty much a lot of the Medicaid, Medi-Cal patients. Most of them are indigent. Um, we're very fortunate in that our patients uh, really appreciate their doctors, and I think that's why I decided to come to do this. Um, I do primary care work in family medicine, so I see you know, all range of patients from one day old to 100, days old, or 100 years old. Um, and, and we do, I mean, obviously the coronavirus has been something we've had to deal with in our own county. And of course, like I said, we were one of the very first to, uh, to establish that. I'd say the one thing that has changed is we've moved like many places now to much more telemedicine, uh, where we're doing phone calls and video visits. In fact, I spend a lot of my time, I only go in the office now about once a week and I, I do the rest of the calls from home. Uh, but that's usually enough. And we're going to try to get our patients slowly coming back in and seeing them. But most of the time we've been trying to do everything virtually as much as we can just to, just to sort of keep the shelter in place going as long as we can. We're speaking uh, with Dr. Milt McCall, uh, who played on those teams, arguably uh, the greatest team ever, the 1980s San Francisco 49ers. And we had your teammate Roger Craig on the show a few weeks ago. It kind of made a little bit of news, uh, which isn't typically what happens on this show, because I don't even remember how it came up, but he kind of went out of his way to say that he thought Tom Brady was the greatest player ever. I'm not going to put you on the spot and uh, and ask you the same question. But I start thinking, when I think about it, and Jerry Kramer from the Packers is my godfather. I grew up you know, kind of knowing all those guys because of my father's relationship with, with the Lombardi teams. And, you know, you talk about those Lombardi's Packers and you talk about the Walsh Seaford 49ers. And of course you talk about the Belichick and Brady Patriots. And if you say dynasty to me, you kind of have to, you kind of have to give it to the Patriots. They won six. They played in nine. But to me, it's a different question. This might be, you know, splitting hairs. It's not the greatest team because that's over the course of like 17 years. Those are several different teams. And you guys, for the most part, were really, 
one cohesive team except for that fifth Super Bowl, which is a different cast of characters and a different quarterback under under Steve Young. So to me, when you talk about team, it's kind of those those 80s Niners and those 60s Packers and, and the Patriots to me are like several teams that all happen to have just a coach and a quarterback in common. How do you feel about that question? You know, it's so hard to compare against decades. I mean, you can really only compare yourself against the people that you played against in your era because things change. The rules change even since we were playing. So, you know, there's no question during the during the 80s, the 49ers were the dominant team. There's no question right now that the the Packers or the um, Patriots were certainly in their era were were the dominant team. I think the you know there were times the the Raiders were in the same game. The, the the um, Dallas Cowboys had their era, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. People have their era, just like the Green Bay Packers. But I think you can only compare yourself into those areas. And, and who's the greatest player of all time? Well, it's going to be hard to say because they're never going to play each other. I mean, obviously, Tom Brady's just a great quarterback. It's just fun to watch him. And the same is true of Montana. I mean, you just knew when Montana had the ball near the end of the game, we were going to win. It just There was just no question in people's mind. All right, so, so answer this for me, Milton. I should know the answer to this, but I've never really looked into it. Maybe he wasn't interested. How did Tom Brady end up at Michigan? Why didn't he end up at Sanford? What happened? What, I, I, what happened to the Cardinal? What I want to know is how come nobody drafted him sooner? That's, <laughs> that's what I really want to know. Why didn't the 49ers <laughs> draft him in the, in the fifth round? Instead of <laughs> that's, that's a very good so, question. Who, who's to say? I mean, that just tells you how much the NFL draft, you just can't tell what players are like in high school or college. So many, I mean, I never got drafted. Nobody would have ever guessed I would have played in the NFL for eight years, and I did. So there's just things happen in the game. A lot of it's a little bit of luck. I, I got fortunate the guy in front of me got injured, and then when he gets injured, I got all the plays and got. I learned and got better. It's just like medicine. The more you do, the better you get out, just like a surgeon. The two-time Super Bowl champion, the family practitioner in Santa Clara County. What a remarkable career. And the second one is just getting, well, third one, I guess I should say, is just getting started. Milt, thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thanks so much for me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It's a topic even more relevant now during the coronavirus pandemic. So this week on Outside the Lines, we focused on athletes dealing with mental health issues. Among those we spoke to, Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic athlete ever. He started talking about his own issues before his last games. And in retirement, he's made mental health awareness one of his missions. Here's part of our conversation. Michael, thank you for being with us. You've been very vocal about some of the issues you've dealt with. Set against the backdrop of the pandemic, how would you describe the mental health issues that so many millions are facing now? Uh, I mean, for me personally, it's been uh, probably the toughest stretch that I've ever gone through. Um you know, I mean, there's there's so many uncertainties, and we're just basically fighting to make sure we stay in some kind of routine to, you know, try to keep it as normal as possible. And and you know, I'll say for me, I've run into a couple scary times where, uh, you know, I, I had some thoughts that that I probably shouldn't have had, and and that that weren't good to have. But you know, I think the the best thing for me is. I've been able to have the people that I love the most help me get through these times. And, and, you know, for the people who are struggling, make sure you're opening up and talking about it. Um, you know, I think there was, you know, for, for a few weeks or, you know, 
Yeah, that's a handful of weeks. I just tried to fight it myself, and and it got me to a, a pretty pretty scary situation. And and um, you know, I say my wife is somebody who single handedly really helped me get through it. How are you doing now? Better. <laughs> um, you know, I I uh, I'm finally, I guess, starting to get back on a normal routine again, and and working out regularly. Um, just doing things that, that I know I need to do in order to make sure that I'm healthy. There's so much anxiety now. There's death, illness, also the economic effects of the pandemic people are dealing with. How should we address the mental health side of what's going on? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just making sure we're, we're taking care of our mental well-being as we are our physical well-being, you know, and, and, and also... For the people that are truly, really struggling out there, understand you're not alone and understand that it's okay to not be okay. Um, you know, as you heard, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to admit I, I go through struggles daily. Um, I, I, I internalize so much and, and I, I, I want to be as perfect as I can and I know that that can't always be. So, um, you know, just make sure I would say talk about things. Talk, talk, talk. Um, that is the biggest thing that saved my life. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, if it's good, bad, or ugly. Just getting things out in the open, uh, I really think just takes a weight off your shoulders. Michael, you have your foundation, the Michael Phelps Foundation. You're working with the digital platform Talkspace. What are the things you're doing right now to help those who really need it? I mean, if you, if you look at it, it's, it's, you know, for me, when I started my foundation, um, it, it was really about water safety. And, and for me and the struggles that I've had with mental health, uh, I, I wanted to change it because I, I you know, and, and, and really make it about, about mental health because there are so many people out there that are struggling. Um, and, and if you look at uh, what Talkspace does and, and what it allows you to do, it, it basically gives you a platform where you can be anonymous and you can just talk through all the, the, the struggles that you're having. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing for so many people, right? You know, kind of having that, that weakness, so to say, you know, so I think just being able to, you know, for me, um, to, to try to encourage as many people as, as I can to, to hop on there. And, and right now, I mean, we've got a lot of free time. So let's, let's utilize these, these things that, that, um, could potentially save our life. And, and I'll say, for me, therapy saved my life. You were in the vanguard as a public figure willing to talk frankly about your own mental health issues. What do you think the impact has been in the last few years with celebrities and athletes such as yourself opening up about these topics? Um, I mean, I, I think, honestly, it just shows that we're human. You know, I, I think so many people think we're, you know almost like an action figure and you just wind us up and we go. But, you know, I think, you know, when, when we're opening up like this and showing um, our vulnerability, I guess showing a sign of vulnerability, um, you know, I think that's just, that's difficult. And, and that's one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. Um, and, and I can't say it enough. There are probably thousands, millions of people that are experiencing the same exact thing that I'm going through. So I think if they see, people like myself or people like Kevin Love or people, you know, uh, Bieber, all of these people have opened up and talked about struggles that they go through. And it's just something that, that we've never really seen over the past five or 10 years, you know? So it's like, I think we've really come a long way 
Um, and, and it's just so powerful when you're able to stand up and, and talk about your struggles. Um, because it, it just shows you, I don't know. Yeah. You're just, you're a person. Michael, you've been such an inspirational example to so many people, and we appreciate your continuing honesty on this subject. Thank you so much for joining us. Cheers, Jeremy. Thanks, bud. If you need more information, you can visit NAMI.org. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide or is in emotional distress, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Communications are free, secure, and completely confidential. For more on Michael Phelps, Wayne Dray's story can be found on ESPN.com. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's hard to believe that Braden Anderson is only 27 years old because he has already experienced and lived through so much. A few years ago, his story got a lot of attention when he was the only player in men's Division I basketball who was attending law school at Seton Hall. Before that, he had suited up for Kansas and for Fresno State. He had survived a near-fatal car accident to return to D1 basketball. He came to the U.S. from Canada to play basketball, and now he is an associate at one of the most prestigious law firms in the world, Sidley Austin in New York. And it is a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life a young man who's obviously been through a lot and achieved a lot, Braden Anderson. Braden, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Does it seem like uh, when, when you hear all of that rattled off that, that that's you, that you've you've been through all that? You know what? It's, it's incredible, just the journey and where it started. It's crazy to think where I am now. Um, my goal when I left Canada at 15, left my family, left my friends right in the middle of, of high school to pursue this crazy dream of just playing college basketball in the U.S., right? That dream alone was crazy coming from a small town of 20,000 people. Um, and you just have, you, you had just never heard of it. You had never heard of somebody going to do it. So it didn't feel possible, right? The best players that I grew up with playing in that area went to the University of Calgary, played for the Dinos, played for Mount Royal, right? And there was incredible players who maybe could have made it to the next level, but it was a mental barrier. Hey, can I really do that? Can I compete down South and do that? And so I think just, from having my sights set on the NBA and, you know, being able to somehow become highly touted in a short period of time and become an All-American and, um, you know, sign with Kansas and the things that happened from then until, until now, you know, you could have never predicted. But I think the way I look at it, Jeremy, is I just feel blessed. I feel really grateful that when I walked away from basketball, I was able to get a lot out of it, right? That, I was able to leverage basketball and use basketball as a vehicle to have some great opportunities and have a great career. You know, so I just feel a lot of gratitude towards the game. Nothing that I've accomplished and, and nothing that I have now would have been possible without basketball. We're speaking with Braden Anderson, the former Seton Hall and Fresno State basketball player. Let's go back to the Kansas story. You were one of the top recruits in the country. Um, Kentucky was after you, Arizona. You end up going to Kansas, but they don't let you play. What, what happened? Yeah. So the first place that I went um, when I left Canada was a high school in a private school in North Carolina. And while they were accredited by the state, um, they were really new, and they 
apparently did not have their full accreditation from the NCAA. And that there's a different process for that. Um, you know, as a kid with literally one opportunity, right? I'm 15. I got one opportunity. I didn't have a bunch of prep schools calling. And you kind of are forced sometimes when you're in those situations to just take what you can get. And there was a lot of other kids. I mean, Andrew Wiggins was at that school with me. There was incredible players there. And great basketball opportunities don't always completely coincide with great academic opportunities. So that ended up being the issue. The NCAA, although I had a 1450 on the SATs, they ruled me a partial qualifier. Big 12 doesn't accept those. Um, and I just kind of was, was left short on that. So you headed out to Fresno State? Well, I had a couple options, right? I, I could have went to a JUCO, and me and Bill Self talked about that. I could have went to a JUCO nearby in Kansas, right, um, and then transferred back. But um, my pride as a student just, could, just wouldn't allow me to do that because I knew – I was a good student, and I was a good enough student to go straight to university. And academically, that felt like a step back, right, to go to JUCO when I know I can get the grades and I know I'm ready for college work at a high level. Um, and so I, I ended up making the choice to go to Texas or to, to go to Fresno State and play for Rodney Terry, who had recruited me when he was at Texas and knew a couple of my friends, Corey Joseph and Tristan Thompson, and um, had a relationship with, with Roe Russell and, and other AAU coaches I had had in the past and, and follow him over there. And, and Michael Schwartz, who had also recruited me when he was at Miami. So it just kind of felt like the right fit. They just got the job. And I was thinking, hey, I'm going to go be a, small, uh, a big fish in a small pond. I'll go out there. Um, I thought I'd do one or two years and, and then put my name in the draft. Um, you know, and, and things were kind of going that way. Uh, until I broke my neck in, uh, in a really, really bad car accident in, in 2013. You spent a month in the hospital. Yeah. So think about, think about this, right? That summer, right before, this is September 2013 that I get in this accident. And literally the two months prior, I had been in Toronto with Team Canada, with the Olympic team, with Steve Nash, with Anthony Bennett, with Andrew Wiggins, with you know, a long list of incredible Canadian basketball players. I trained with them all summer. Um, we were preparing to make an Olympic run, right? And, like, that's where I was at that time, right, in terms of my game, in terms of what I was thinking about. Almost all of my friends and colleagues that I played with are either in the NBA or playing professionally, very successful, somewhere overseas, right? Um, so that accident really kind of – changed my world and and changed what my outlook was going to be. We're speaking with Braden Anderson. You've been hearing his story for the last several minutes, all the twists and turns. At that point, you have every reason to believe that you're going to be a professional basketball player as well. Um, but you weren't supposed to even be able to step on a court after the accident took place, the car crash. How did you get yourself back into shape to play the game? How, how did you how did you achieve that? So that was one of those nightmare situations that you you really wouldn't wish upon anybody. You wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy. Um, I was in a hospital for over a month. I lost um, around forty five percent of my body mass. I lost about eighty something pounds. 
Um, you, you literally have to learn not only to walk and stand again, but even to push yourself up in bed, right? The atrophy, nobody knows. If you haven't been stuck to a bed, literally can't move, really paralyzed because you're under so many, you know, so much drugs, um, you can't move. You can't move. You can't even sit up in bed, right? Um, swallowing foods again, right? Um, starting with Jello, like it was like being, you know, it was like being a baby again, really. Um, and you know, so it was a long road to be able to add that muscle mass back on again. And it was almost like a movie, right? We've all seen Friday Night Lights, and there's that scene where Booby Miles is like, "Hey, coach," or you know, "Hey, Doc." Am I going to be able to play? You know, am I going to be able to play again, Doc? And I, I had that moment, and it was a terrifying moment. And I think what I went through internally, having, you know, going through that, that process of asking that question and the anxiety of thinking, man, what is he going to say? You know, because I had so much riding on basketball. And to utter those words and to just feel the anxiety kind of hanging in the air of what is he going to say? Um, you know, is he going to say I got a shot? I'm reading his body language, right? I'm not just paying attention to what he's going to say. I'm, I'm looking at his body language, right? Is he kind of hesitating? Because it's, it's a tough question. And he kind of looked at me and kind of made a, an uncertain face and was like, I don't know. You know, he was like, I don't know. That's it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and I was uh. like, ah. And, and that kind of just made me – it did a couple of things. I think one – I really, I have a chip on my shoulder, and I love to kind of... It's not like a movie. It is, right? It felt like that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write this script. And my goal was to be able to come back and play. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know if I'd be the same type of player. I, didn't, I had no idea what that would look like. But I had a couple goals, right? One was to get back on the court. Um, and that was a difficult process. And obviously, it was mostly you know, working with the trainers and, and working with physio people and, and working with the weights, uh, the weights coach and, and just being dedicated. That's easy to, you know, not easy, but that's something that is controlled. It's something that you can control, right? Something you put your body through. The next piece is, is, is a little bit more nuanced. And it was, I wanted to leverage basketball as much as I could because I felt so uncertain about my basketball future. I felt this burning desire to squeeze every opportunity that I was getting in, in connection with playing this game of basketball, squeeze it and get every drop out of it. Right. And I started thinking, Hey, I'm not getting paid to play right now. Right. Not in money. I'm not getting paid in money to play. Right. I was all this, that all everything, Mr. Canada basketball hadn't made a dime. Right. But I was making some compensation in education. And so I really started to obsess about that, about how do you assess the value of what your education is and how do you get as much as you possibly can out? And that's kind of how the idea of playing basketball while in law school was born. It was born out of a desire to get as much value out of the game as I could. Well, Braden, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Uh, there, there is so much there. Uh, I, I hope to see it in book form someday. Thanks again for having me on. 
This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And I have to say, I'm very excited to have our next guest, the great Mike Lupica. And this is a real privilege because we haven't had Mike on the show in a couple of years. And I miss speaking to him. I grew up with Mike. I worked for Mike. Um, Mike is an incredible talent, a unique talent. And and I got to ask, Mike, the new book is Grudge Match. And you've been writing the Robert Parker books now for a number of years. But how many books is this now? Jeremy, I, you know, I should know this. I, I think, I think this is my 42nd book. Um, you won't believe me when I tell you that I have a new book for young readers, my middle graders coming out a week from now on, on May 12th. I don't know when we're, when this is going to air. And, um, yeah, Jeremy, first of all, it's nice to be with you. Um, I, you know, I feel like I watched you grow up. I had the high privilege of next to your dad for over a decade on the sports reporters. And I tell people all the time that, that he allowed me to look good on that show. He, he was always the smartest, the funniest. He was always on point and, but he would turn to me and team me up and, and made me look better than I was simply because of how generous he was. And you, you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, I'd be driving back to Connecticut when we were still doing the show in in New York City in Times Square. And there would always be a moment where I'd be about halfway up, maybe on the Hutchison Parkway, and think, oh, I should have said that in that moment. But you know who always said that in that moment? Dick Schaap did, okay? And, and it was not for nothing that Dave Anderson once said of him, he was the most talented of all of us. And again, I, uh, I, I, I miss him. I miss him all the time. And yeah, my, my career, especially on television, wouldn't have been remotely the same uh, uh, without him. And, and so whenever I think I'm doing a lot, okay, I think how many books he wrote and everything he did, and it doesn't feel quite as, as uh, immense uh, to me. But I think this is like my 42nd. I think it's my 42nd uh, book. You know what? He would be very upset to hear that because his total was like 33. And that was including <laughs> some anthologies that he just edited, a few books. You know, many of them were, were ghostwritten. You've had a few of those, especially earlier in your career. But he would be very upset to learn that you've surpassed him by <laughs> about 10 books. No, no. You know, the, the truth of it is he'd be pleased. He'd be pleased. And I'll, well, I'll tell you about this because we, we have lots to talk about today. Um, a couple of summers ago, I was up in Vermont, and our daughter, Hannah, she rides. And she was at a show up there, and we had rented a house. I can't house. even imagine how much money you have spent on that. I can't even imagine. Yeah, well, no, no. That's why I'll be riding until I die. Okay, so, and now, <laughs> so, so we're, we're, we're up there, and my agent, Esther Newberg, is the, you know, she is the agent for the Robert B. Parker estate. And my buddy Ace Atkins had resumed the Spencer series. This is all Bob's. Bob always knew that after he was gone, he wanted these characters to resume. Okay, so it's a, it's not like somebody hijacked his legacy. And he was a, he was a great friend of mine. And so the Spencer novels continued. Uh, a couple there were two writers who did the Jesse Stone novels, and his westerns have been continued by an author named Robert Knott. And I had actually listened to a Sonny Randall novel on the way up uh, from Connecticut. And I innocently said to Esther, how come nobody's continued Sonny Randall? 
And she said, you know, I'll, I'll call Ivan Held over at Putnam and, and, and find out. She calls, to, in typical Esther style, she calls me back an hour later, and she said, Ivan wants you to write a sample chapter. And I said, no, 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 no. I wasn't looking for more things to do. I was just curious. And she said, write the sample chapter, Michael, okay? I got up the next morning. This is all true, Jeremy. I got up the next morning, and I wrote about 10 pages that became, is essentially the chapter one in my first Sunny, which is called blood feud and we we were we were in 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 the in the robert b parker business in the sunny randall business i i have to tell you i have written all the books we just talked about for two straight books these are the best reviews i have ever gotten it has been a labor of love i first started reading bob parker when i was at boston college i have probably read all of his mysteries two or three times. What did he write? Did he write 60 of these books? I mean, I know Ed McBain wrote like 100. Did, did Parker write more than Ed McBain? You know what? I, Jeremy, I've got, I've got Blood Feud in my hands now. The uh, uh, grudge match is downstairs. And literally, when you look at the... the uh, it takes two pages, okay? It takes two pages. The Spencer novels are one page. Then the Jesse Stone novels, then Sonny, then the Cole and Hitch westerns, and then he wrote he wrote some other historical novels. No, it, so whenever everybody says, "Oh, well, God, you must be writing all the time," I say, you know, take a look at the guy whose character I've been lucky enough and privileged enough to resume. We're speaking with great Mike Lupica. His new book is Grudge Match, a Robert Parker novel, and and as I said earlier, Mike, uh, you know, I've known you my whole life. And um, I was lucky when I was in high school, when I was in college. Well, I guess it was college when it started. When I'd I'd go into the sports reporters on Sunday mornings, and we we grab bagel. And I must have been the only college kid in America who looked forward to getting up at six in the morning on Sundays <laughs> to go yeah, into my father's right. workplace and and listen to you guys. And of course, everything was best in the makeup room and the green room, even better than the show itself. Um, but when I think about the scope of the things you've done over the last 40 plus years in this business as a columnist, as a novelist, as a TV personality, as a political columnist for the last several years, um, you know, you, you made the decision a long time ago that you were going to do everything and and, and, and not take a rest and, and be a workaholic like my dad in that vein. What is it like driving yourself so hard all the time? But see, that's the thing. I, first of all, your dad was a great inspiration to me because there was nothing that he didn't think was out of his reach. Okay. And he did want to do everything. You know, I always thought, um, and we're not going to turn this into the Dick Schaap hour, but I always thought that when they wrote the history of ESPN, not nearly enough credit was given to him and the gravitas. He'd laugh if, if he heard me talking about his gravitas, but you know what I'm talking about. He made the place so legit when he came. You know, there were other people doing fine work there, but when Dick Schaap lent his name and his resume to ESPN, I always thought that he was one of the game changers there and didn't get enough credit. But I never think of it. I love to write. When, when I go around and talk to kids, at schools and since travel team and and came out in 2004, I've spoken at hundreds of schools around the country when, uh, when another book would come out. And I always tell them, listen, you have to support Mr. Lupica because he has no other skills. Okay. (laughs) So you, 
you know, I always tell them, and they laugh, and I say, if the writing thing goes south, you know, I, I have nothing to fall back on. And I, I, and and I've been lucky enough to do TV. You know, we were on 28 years oh. on Sunday mornings. Yeah. And, and 28 years, Jeremy, nothing runs. When, when people were saying, oh, we're so sorry the sports reporters went off the air. Well, I said, well, first of all, I don't have to get up at 5 o'clock on Sunday mornings anymore. And, and second of all, I use the old Jimmy Breslin line. Thanks for the use of the hall. Nothing runs for 28 years. Nothing. Sports Center, I guess, has run longer than that. But we we had a ball. And now Mitch and Bob and I are, you know, are lucky enough. We put the band back together and we're doing two podcasts a week. But but when I sit down to write in the morning and I've never thought of myself and the same as 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 as, as your dad. OK, I've always thought of myself as a writer first. Mm-hmm. The other stuff has been great, okay? But when I shut the door in my writing room and these characters start to come alive, I just think to myself, this is this is everything I thought I could ever hope for when I was working nights at the, you know, I did the, I started out the way you did. I was, I was writing for the school paper. I was working nights at the Boston Globe. I was writing for the Boston Phoenix. I was running as fast as I could, but it never feels like I'm grinding away when when I sit down to write. It's it's the it's the happiest time of my professional day. And so, you know, if I'm writing two hours or three hours, sometimes I'm working on two books at once, and I'm thinking, okay, you're not going to complain because this is all you ever wanted to do. The great Mike Lupica. Uh, it's been good catching up, Mike. Okay, Jeremy. It's so good to talk to you. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.